Hey guys, this is Naeem and you've reached the Mosaic Church Podcast. So excited that you're part of our listening community and I'd love for you to be even more connected. So check out our website. There's more content there and there's more opportunities for you to get connected in our ministries and events as well. Also, love for you to share this content. If this is blessed to you, I know that God wants to use you to bless other people with it. So share this podcast, if you will. Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you and enjoy. Thank you. Y'all doing well? Everybody's good. Oh my goodness. I see the Panthers jerseys and uh, and, and I need y'all to know my, my heart, my emotional heart. I drafted some Panthers players in my fantasy draft. And so... Um, and, and, and my advice to everybody when they're like, Joel, I know you do fantasy stuff. And I was like, yes. And he's like, and, and I always tell him, don't draft with your heart, y'all. Don't, it'll, your heart will be broken. And um, so, you know, I just really need um, Sam Darnold to, to pull through big time for all of us. All right. We're here to talk about the Bible instead. Um, hey, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 32. Um, it's really helpful because it's like in the very beginning of the Bible and just, you know, open up to the front cover, a couple pages, and, and you will get there. And uh, the title of today's sermon is um, called Sacred Space. Sacred Space. And uh, I'm really excited. My wife, Britt, is here and our three boys are right there. What's up, boys? So good to see you right? Um, and so, boys, I don't know if you know this. I didn't tell you this, but um, one of the ways that I got your mom to marry me is uh, by taking her to Starbucks. Everybody, you know, you know? So, so here's what's really incredible. Here's what's really incredible. Um, we all have places, moments, where we walk into a space, and instantly, when we walk into that space, we are almost overwhelmed with memories, we're almost instantly, like in our minds, transported from our physical, timely reality and location. But in a split second, it's almost like we're living a past memory. Anybody have those moments? Sometimes it might be taking a, an exit in a neighborhood that you lived in so many years ago and you, and you remember what it was like to take that exit all the time or walking through the front door of a house that you lived in for, for so long and, and you don't no longer live there, and now you go back and, and, you, and you walk in. Well, well, for Brittany and I, one of those places is, is Starbucks. When we first started dating, we would go to Starbucks. I worked at Starbucks, which meant that I got free drinks from Starbucks, which meant that it really helped my budget to take my girlfriend at the time to Starbucks, and, and we would sit there, we would process life, and, and I got to hear about her vision, and, and the things that she loved, and, and she got to sit there, and, and just, you know, have to just deal with the fact that I kept talking about the Bible all the time, and things that I was learning uh, about that, and, and yet, to this day, whenever we go to Starbucks, and I just want to let y'all know, my wife has frequent flyer miles at Starbucks, so do I, it's almost instant, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a, a long story behind this. There are memories associated with this. There's so much joy 
next to a place called Starbucks. Now, Naeem already mentioned that I'm Indian. Um, and I don't know if this is an Indian thing, Naeem, but maybe it's a Pakistani thing too, but maybe it's just a, a human thing. But in my house, when, when you would walk in growing up, uh, it's really interesting. Our house would be chaotic. I had three, uh, I, had, I was one of three children, and, and we had a lot going on in our, on in our home. And, um, but when you walked in, there was this room right to the right-hand side of our room, and, and we had a very special name for this room. We called this room the Forbidden room. Okay? So, so I've got to give a little bit of detail. Like, like we knew as kids that like we could do anything anywhere except if you were to walk into the forbidden room, you would see the most majestic, beautiful, white couches. And on top of those beautiful, majestic white couches, you would see the original packaging of the plastic that was still on the couches. And you would know, my siblings and I knew from the minute that we were born, that we were not allowed in this forbidden room for any reason at all. Well, well, one day, my younger brother, I've got uh, twin younger brother and sisters, they're twins, I'm not part of that crew, but you know, uh, Noe, his name's Noel, I call him Noe, Noe's always been a bit rebellious. He's always felt like he kind of knows what's going on that hasn't left him. He's still like that today. Um, Noe decided one day that, you know what, forget this, he's probably seven years old, forget this. I have a glass of red punch, and today I want to drink my red punch in the forbidden room. Now, my sister, who's always been the most responsible one, she actually works, uh, she's a captain in the Air Force now in the Pentagon, very responsible, right? All of the responsibility there. She would beg Noel, no, no, do not do it. It's a bad idea. I have always loved watching shows. I'm like, go ahead, do it, dog. You got this. <laughs> and so I could, it's almost slow motion. Kitchen's like, no. I'm like, mm-hmm. And then he's walking in and like, oh, slow motion. It's, he's got the cup. He trips. He's so excited. He trips and he spills the red punch all over the white couches in the forbidden room. I guarantee you that boy has never been more grateful for the invention of plastic than that moment right there. You see, we knew inside of that room all of the things that we were not supposed to do. We knew that it wasn't a place to just party and hang out or have some pizza or watch a movie or play some games. But simultaneously, we also knew the thing that that room was intended to be used for. And so if my mom really loved y'all, right, like like she really loved y'all, and you were coming to visit, all of a sudden that forbidden room flipped and the lights would turn on, and, and you would be ushered in almost like royalty into this room, and, and you would take a seat, and, and you would feel the crinkling of plastic as you took the seat. And then my mom would walk in with a, a tray, and she would have Indian chai, and, and she would put it in front of you with, with biscuits, and, and you would be treated like royalty. And it was almost in that moment, the same room, where, where if you walked in like my brother and did something irresponsible, it could turn into tragedy. That same room was no longer a forbidden room, but it actually turned into a sacred space. It was a place where people came together. 
There's a place where we could learn about each other. There's a place where stories could be told that would invite us into the hearts and lives of each other. It was sacred space. But isn't it so interesting that the very same space where tragedy could take place is also the very same space that something special could take place. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 32 in verse 24. We're met by a guy, we're met with a guy named Jacob, and I just need to give a little bit of background to Jacob. Jacob um, was, uh, he thought he was all that. Let me just say it that way. A bit pretentious, a bit prideful. He was very smart and very strategic, and, and, and he stole the birthright of his brother, and then he ran away. But the irony of Jacob's life is all the things that he did to his older brother Esau, he experienced done to himself by his uncle Laban. And so the very person who thought he was all that found himself working for 14 years to get married to the woman that he wanted to marry. The irony of Scripture is so beautiful sometimes. And then, Jacob is running for his life. He takes his family, and he realizes if he stays with Laban, like things are not going to work out well for him. And so he runs, and, and he goes back towards home. But, but here's the thing, that when Jacob leaves Laban, he grabs all of his family, and he is grabbing with him all of his baggage as well. All of the hurt and and the hardship and, and all of the harm that he has experienced and that he has done onto other people, all of those things are, are actually following him. And then we get to this point where Jacob realizes that, okay, he's about to cross into a territory that is his brother's territory, and, and, and he might meet big brother. And, and remember, the last relationship experience he had with his big brother was not good. And he's worried But now, not just for himself, but for his family, a massive family that's with him. And so we start in verse 24, and what Jacob does is he sends his family away from him because he has no idea what Esau's response is going to be. And in verse 24, this is what it says, that Jacob was left alone. Have you ever felt alone in your life? The irony is, At times, we could be sitting in a room with 10 people or even in a room with 10,000 people and yet still feel utterly alone. And it's in those moments of aloneness, in those moments of of loneliness that that our mind begins to tempt us and, and trick us into believing all of those negative things about ourselves. Our minds begin to recall all of the the horror and the harm that that either we've experienced or that we've done to other people. And and I think that's what's taking place in Genesis 32, verse 24. Jacob is left alone, and then the narrative, the scriptures, they take a, a really odd twist. And then all of a sudden it says, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, y'all, no details at all. How does the man show up? Right? Like he just appears, he's just there. We're not told how this happens, but, but what we are told is that the man wrestles with him until daybreak. And then catch this, verse 25. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck or he touched Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Anybody ever have a dislocation take place in their lives? 
Yeah, that ain't, that ain't like a little thing. It's not like, oh, I just stubbed a toe, it hurts for a second, and now I'm good. No, no, dislocation is serious. And they keep fighting. Then he said to Jacob, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob realized in the midst, in the tension, in the center of the struggle that the person that he was wrestling with was not any natural person, but was supernatural. How do we know? Because Jacob says, what is your, actually, uh, Jacob, uh, the man, uh, the man asked Jacob, what is your name? And the man asked, and the, and Jacob replied, Jacob. And then the man says to Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob. He said, you will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But the man says, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed him there. We see the details, everything that's taking place here. There's pain. There's hardship. And there's tension. And yet, verse 31 Verse 30, then Jacob named the place where he struggled, Peniel, and he says this, for I have seen God face to face, and he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. Amazing. The very place where Jacob walks into and pauses and waits for a judgment potentially from his brother, begins the very tension moment that God meets Jacob. And they wrestle and they fight. And then God touches Jacob's hip and his hip is displaced. And then Jacob leaves that spot limping. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jacob and I just realized that a dude has just touched my hip and my hip has been displaced right after the the man blesses me and he's about to walk out, I might be like, "Um, excuse me, man who just kind of appeared here. You mind touching me again so I can be healed? (laughs) But that doesn't take place. And and then you got God himself. You would think like, all right, God, like, give the man one, right? Like, he struggled with you throughout the night. Like, maybe just help him out, touch him, like, like heal him. Like, y'all, there is no Uber that's going to come pick up Jacob from this moment. Jacob, he got to walk a long ways. And he walks with a limp. It could be easy for us in this moment to say that Jacob's limp would forever, would forever be a reminder for him of all the hard things that took place in his life. It could easily be easy for us to say that Jacob's limp would forever be a reminder to him of all of the punishment that he deserved because of the deceitfulness inside of Jacob's heart. But I want to present an idea that Jacob's limp was actually not a reason for the loss of his status. Instead, it becomes the mark of his status. God leaves Jacob with the limp, not in a judgment, but in blessing. Why? 
Because every time Jacob walks into a room and somebody sees him and says, yo, why you got that limb? Jacob responds, let me tell you a story. At this time when I was like totally alone, and I thought that my brother Esau was about to whoop me straight up. And yet God showed up. And I wrestled with God. But God didn't leave me the way I was. He blessed me. And this limp that I have is but a small marker. Is but a small marker of actually not God's judgment, but God's kindness. It's actually not an indication that God hates me, but it's actually a visible representation that God has immense love for me. In this place, Penuel, it almost in that moment becomes, not almost, it does become a sacred space. And so what is sacred space? Well, Jacob enters into Penuel with tragedy. He enters into that space with the tension of human reality. He, he walks into that place with all of the, the horror and the hardship and the harm that, that he has experienced and that he has done. And yet, at that very place is the intersection of where he meets God So what is sacred space? Sacred space is the place where the reality of humanity's tragedy meets the assurance of Christ's triumph. Jacob and God are in a struggle. Ain't nobody going to leave until somebody wins. I'm going to let you know right now, Jacob ain't going to win. God wins. And yet, the mystery wrapped up in all of this is that at one point, Jacob had to let go. You see the tension that is present in the relationship? God's power and immense sovereignty, and yet also humanity's responsibility. And this idea of sacred space is not just an Old Testament idea. In fact, it shows up all the time in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus has a lot to say about sacred space. He has an entire theology, a theology of remembrance around sacred space. And and here's what's interesting. Almost, I would say, the most important place where sacred space occurs is the table. The table. Well, why? Well, turn to Luke chapter 22, 14 through 20. Here's Jesus himself. He's walking. His life is, is, is leading him to the cross. And this is how Luke, the historian, starts Luke 22, verse 14. It starts like this. And when the hour came, think, dun, dun, dun. Like, 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 like sometimes we miss the, the motion of what's taking place. But there's something happening, and and here's Jesus. Jesus is reclined at the table. He reclined at the table. Again, the details are so important. What happens when y'all are going to recline? Like, for instance, when you sit down to watch the Panthers game, a bunch of y'all are going to be reclining on your recliners. I know I am. And the minute when you start with your reclining, you've got your feet kind of lifted up, right? Like, like, I'm chilling. This is great. Until Sam Darnold throws the first interception. And then the reclining comes down, and now you're like, no! Right? Like, 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 and Matt, what is actually happening with the, with, the, with the reclining? It tells you something about the state of mind of the individual. And yet here's Jesus reclining at the table. And Jesus knows the cross is ahead of him. I can't even fathom this. 
And the apostles are with him. This is what Jesus says. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. A little bit of Old Testament history. The Passover meal is a recollection of the Israelites, um, uh, their, their, uh, their, their release from Egypt. It's when the angel of death passes over them because of the, the blood of the lamb that is on the front of the door. And I'm just curious, what are the Israelites doing huddled up in their homes while the angel of the Lord passes over them? They're eating a meal. Where does the meal take place? Around a what? Table. And so here's Jesus, and he says this, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Wait, what? Can we edit the Bible? No, we can't. Just so you know, we can't do that. But I want to. Like, like Jesus, no. You, you, you can't say I suffer. Maybe, maybe this is what he meant. But, but um, I, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I reign victorious. That feels so much better. Before I ascend into the heavens and sit at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 1.10. Um, 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 before I conquer sin and death through death itself. All of that sounds so much better. But what takes place? No, no, no. This is what Jesus says. I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's at the table, and he's talking about suffering. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he does this. It's imagery that, that if we grew up in the church tradition, we, we probably have done before. Uh, it, it's called taking communion, and, and this is what he does. He says, he says and he took a cup, kind of like this. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took a piece of bread and we had given thanks. He, he broke the bread and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Have we caught what just took place? Jesus in this moment at the table, he institutes what's called a, a theology of remembrance through communion. And if I am Jesus, which we should all be grateful that I am not Jesus, I am not talking about the reality of my suffering that I want people to remember for, for, for generations to come. I want people to remember my victory. I want people to remember my successes. I want people to know my name and, and all the credentials that come after my name. No, y'all, I want to put a nice filter on Instagram over to cover up all the blemishes that are taking place on my eyes that are so tired. But this is not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, and he pleads with us today, that when we come to the table, that we come to the table and we remember a past suffering. Why? Because there are no shortcuts to get to the destination. We can't get to the cross. We can't get to the resurrection. We definitely can't get to the ascension unless... We go through the suffering. It was necessary, the book of Hebrews tells us, for Jesus to suffer so that he might be the source of eternal life for all of us. And something pretty spectacular takes place today 
when you and I participate in this. We're in what's called the already but not yet. We're standing right now in the present, but every time we take a bread or, or we take water or wine or grape juice, whatever you want to do, we're remembering a past reality that reminds us of Jesus' victory, that gives us confidence to live in our present situation, that informs and builds up an assurance that the future will not be devastating because Jesus is victorious. This is the hope of the gospel. And Jesus reminds us to remember all of these things where at a table. What takes place at a table? Well, the table is the place where people meet. The table, the table is the place where people talk. The table is the place where people laugh. The table is also typically the place where people cry. My boss, Lisa Turkers, um, we, we have in our ministry what we call our favorite theology study days. Our favorite days in ministry are theology study days. And most people would expect that a theology study day with a biblical theologian and an incredible Bible teacher and a bunch of people that love reading God's word, that it would look like being in some stuffy library with a bunch of ancient books and Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff laid out. But, but theology study days for us, here's what it looks like. We, we walk in, typically at Lisa's house and and there's a table it's this it's this big old table with lots of chairs and then there's these human beings that walk through the front door with our bibles and with our journals and maybe a commentary or some research tools but more importantly the the honesty of our human heart and we pull the the chair back and and we sit down at the table, and I want to let you know what happens at this table. Before we jump into Greek and Hebrew and meta-narrative and eschatology or, or any of these biblical doctrine, theological things, we start with, how are you today? How's life? And I just need you all to know I'm a coffee person. Like, I love coffee. Some people might call it an addiction. I call it God's kindness. And so this was over the summer, just a couple months ago, and, and, and Lisa's house is, is so beautiful, but, but something happened. I don't know what happened, but there were flies everywhere, like flies everywhere. And so finally, somebody brought out this electric fly swatter. Anybody ever seen these electric fly swatters? Oh my gosh, they're, they are God's greatest gift to humanity outside of Jesus himself, right? Like, like amazing. And so it's my job. I, I am a theologian, but right next to my LinkedIn, professional fly killer with the electric, right? So, so I, it's my job to kill the fly. So we're sitting down and, and there's this fly just killing me, messing with me, right? And so I had the thing in my hand and there's a button. Y'all be very careful. Make sure you only press the button when you intend to use the swatter. It will be very painful otherwise, right? So there's the button there, and I, and I press the button, and I'm watching, and, and here's the, the tactic of the electric fly swatter. You don't do it like a normal fly swatter where you swipe it. You might hit somebody. That's very bad. Don't do that, right? What you actually do is you anticipate. This is a science. You get a PhD in fly swatting. You're anticipating where the fly is going so that you can intersect the fly with the fly swatter, and it is brilliant. And I did this, and I did this amazingly, and, and I grabbed it, and I did it, and this fly goes in, and you can almost see in its little beady eyes ah! and then it hits the fly and it sizzles and it was almost like slow motion y'all I was like yeah but then it goes I'm like yeah and then I'm like oh and the fly fell in my coffee and, and 
all of my joy turned to immediate sorrow. And I'm crying because I'm like, my coffee. And I'm like, the team, Leah, Lisa, Shay, Maddie, every, they're laughing, they're crying because they're laughing at me. That ain't right. Come on, where's your humanity? And there's a different day we walked, same table, same coffee, same books, same human hearts. One of our friends walked in and sat in at the table and you know when you got that friend that you just know, and there's a, there's, there's a crying, right? Like, there's a crying, like something hard has happened, and, and you spend a few minutes crying. And there's a different type of crying where you know that the crying has been going on for hours on end. And the eyes are red, and the face is a bit puffy, and you can tell you've, they've probably tried to cover it up with all the tools at your disposal, but you can't cover up that kind of crying. And so we sat there and just said, hey, what's everything okay? What's going on? And our friend shared with us at the table that um, her family just got information that her dad got a really horrific cancer diagnosis. And um, we didn't have words. We didn't have a winsome thing to say. All we had in that moment were to allow our tears to join her tears and to remind her of the hope that we have in Jesus. A few months later, I walked in, same room, same table, same books, similar people, and I've got the spiritual gift of wearing my emotions on my sleeve. Anybody else got that? <laughs> Somebody does. And uh, I walked in, and, and uh, Elise looked at me and said, what happened? And I said, well, my mom texted me um, the other day, and um, they found my cousin's body in the back of a car in a parking garage on her campus in Chicago. And we had to process that sorrow. Same table. Same place where joy and laughter took place. Exact same situations. And yet, so different the types of tears that we shed at the table. But here is the incredible, mysterious thing about that table. The table is not a table if it were not for the people who sat around the table. Because each person brings their hurts. Each person brings their joy. Each person brings the story of what God has done in their lives to that exact same table. And this is the mystery and the beauty of the gospel that something as simple as a table in those moments becomes sacred space where the reality of humanity's tragedy intersects with the assurance of Christ's triumph. And smack, smack in the center of that reality is tension. And the tension is what you and I live in. 
my friend Catherine Wolf, her and her husband Jay, they run an incredible ministry called Hope Heals. And just um, a month ago, my son Levi and I had the opportunity to be at their camp um, for a whole week. I got to, to teach throughout that week. And Catherine was a rising um, star in kind of the movie world. And she suffered a horrific stroke. Um, should have really killed her, but uh, by God's grace, she was able to survive, but um, just visibly, physically, it just took a massive toll on her. And one of the nights we're sitting down um, after one of the sessions, and Jane Catherine are there, uh, and sometimes Catherine has to kind of, um, she can walk, but it's safer for her at times to be in a wheelchair because she's had falls before, and it could be very dangerous for her. And, And Catherine had said to me once that night, she said, you know, Joel, it's really interesting because whenever I go into a room and I'm in my wheelchair and because of my face and the paralysis that took place as a result of the stroke, people instantly know that I have been through it. Right? There ain't no hiding that. There's this wheelchair that tells people that that, that I've gone through something horrific. But Catherine is so brilliant because she said something to me and and it has been, I've held on to it dearly. She said, but Joel, Every room that you and I walk into, there are people that are strolling around in invisible wheelchairs. I just have to, the ease of, just, I can't hide it. People can know. They got it. But what about the invisible wheelchair, the hidden hurt, the the, the sadness that is behind the eyes of tremendous laughter? What about the the invisible wheelchair that we all carry around in a room this size? I mean, there are some invisible wheelchairs rolling around. It is hard. Well, the Apostle Paul has something to say about this and the hope that happens when the people of God gather around the table. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 21. It says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body, catch this, if you feel weak, if you feel like your life has been full of hurt, if you feel like it's just hard to just wake up in the morning and get up and go out and do your job, this is what Paul says. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, catch this, indispensable. Like, we can't do this without you. We need you. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, catch this, greater honor. And on the unrepresentable parts, we're treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. And catch this, but God so composed the body. That means that God has a design. That means God has a purpose. That means God has intentionality. He so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that catch, this is the payoff. Why do we even care about this? That there may be no division in the body. Do we live in a world of division? Nah, that ain't happening. <laughs> but do you see the upside down nature of the kingdom of God here? but there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And y'all, catch this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now. And I think that now in Greek is emphatic. It's actually wrapping up the sentence that comes before it. It's taking these two clauses, the if one member or if one member is suffering or honored. Now, in light of that, if we all suffer together and if we all honor and rejoice together, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the other nuance of this. Does your individually ma uh, individuality matter? Yes, but not so you can live on your own. Your individuality matters only so far and as much as you bring it to the table so that one individual meets the life of another individual that meets with the life of another individual that meets with the life of the other individual and right smack at the center is the good news of the gospel that knits all of these lives together. And this is all training us for something. This is all teaching us for something. Let's go again to another table scenario, Luke chapter 14, 21 through 24. In your Bibles, you might see a little header. Some of them sometimes say eschatological banquet. That's just a big theological word that means the, the, the feast that's gonna happen when Jesus comes back. But I gotta set this up the right way. Right before this text, right before these verses, there's another story of a man who has this illness called dropsy. And dropsy is basically this illness where fluid builds up inside of a person. They would be so immensely thirsty that they drank so much to, to ease the thirst, but it didn't matter because they kept getting more thirsty. In fact, their, their body would just continue to swell up. In the ancient world, a person with dropsy was viewed as somebody who had done something so horribly wrong that the, the gods had judged them. So you know what the world would do? They would never have anything to do with the person with dropsy. It was a visible marker, like having a scarlet letter on your face. And you would never, especially a good Jewish person, would never touch a person with dropsy. You wanna know what Jesus does when he walks into the room and he sees the dude with dropsy? touches him and heals him. And then we get into this parable in Luke 14. You see, there's this master who's having this incredible feast and, and he sends out these invitations to all his VIP guests, the Kardashians and the Janet Jacksons and the President Bushes and, and the Obamas, like all of them, they all come in, right? But what would happen if everybody said declined and none of your people came through? You just have a big old feast with an empty table. This is what the master does in Luke 14. Just so you know, we know the master is Jesus. So the servant came and reported these things to the master that basically there'd been a whole bunch of declines for the VIP invites. And the master of the house became so angry and said to the servant, yo, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the Greek word there. It's a verb. It actually means let in, which probably means that you're supposed to touch the person and bring them in. Uh, and why does this matter? Catch the types of people they're supposed to bring in. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, but still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go to the highway and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's so important when the master says, go to the hedges or to the highways. Why? That was where, that was the place where the, the most outcast of the society would live. 
That was the place where, where the people who were thrown out would stay. It's kind of like beggar communities that live underneath the, the, the highways. And when you drive by and you see all the pop-up tents, like, like those are the types of places. And Jesus says, go there. And we're about to fill the, the seats here with those people. I want us to catch who is invited to the table. Everybody. Everybody is invited to the table. Why? Because the table is a sacred space. But when you come to the table and you bring the reality of your human hurting, you are in a significantly and powerfully, graciously moment met with the triumph of Jesus. And in a moment, all of those things that you've experienced. I don't have like human ways to explain this other than the way the gospel explains it. That all of those moments we find out were not meaningless. But as the Apostle Paul says, we're building up for us an eternal weight of glory that we might experience where? At the table with other people before we think this is just like a New Testament idea, it's brand new. No, no, no. This was prophesied hundreds of thousands of years earlier. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, that's a military term, Lord of hosts. It means the king of kings. He will make for all peoples, I dug deep into the Hebrew, all means all, he makes for rich people, no. He makes for the culturally elite people, no. He makes for the people to get all the Nike drops with the newest shoes, no. He makes for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. That means the good stuff. Of aged wine, well-refined. And I think there are some of us here that are strolling around in invisible wheelchairs that are terrified to sit at the table and to be honest about the reality of our lives because we are unsure of what might take place. And we long for this verse to be true. What is this verse? The Lord of hosts, that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death forever. And this, friends, is true. And the Lord God will wipe away tears. The physical ones and the invisible ones from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Where the people of God meet around the table. And when we meet Jesus at the table, we have sacred space. So, my question for you and for me will you go to the table? And who is at the table with you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you 
that you instituted for us intentionally a reason for us to meet at the table. That we might reflect on the reality of our suffering. That we might reflect on the reality of your suffering. That we might, in all of that reflection, remember that the end of the story is a victorious one that Jesus did in fact conquer sin and death. Jesus in fact did not stay in a tomb, but that tomb is empty and he rose and ascended and he will come back again just the way that he left. Lord, I pray for the individual tables that are represented in this room and online, that, that we would meet beautifully and powerfully with the reality of your victory that you would give us the help that we need to live each day, day by day, with the assurance of your kindness and your goodness. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. We're gonna respond now, and as we sing this song, there are tables out here where you can take communion and go to the table, or there's the cross, and you can light candles, and there's a team that is available to pray for you, and um, we can just move into that time now. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.